Hi everyone, I'm Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today. I've been a space and astronomy journalist for over 20 years, and we're constantly reporting on various topics in space and astronomy, but I like to bring you behind the scenes, talk to some of the people who are actually working on the technology. And uh, today I'm excited to talk to, to Frank Martius. Dr. Frank Marches, yeah, from SETI Institute and also from Unistellar. And we have, uh, I'm really excited, actually. I've been following your work for, for several years. So why don't you let people know who you are and what you do? Yeah, so as you say, my name is Frank Marches. I'm a researcher at the SETI Institute. I'm a planetary astronomer. Um, I design instruments uh, for ground-based telescopes, essentially using adaptive optic systems to study asteroids and the search for exoplanets. I'm part of the GPI project, for instance. But on the side, I'm also an entrepreneur and I'm working, I'm a co-founder of Unistellar, a company which designs telescopes, digital smart telescopes like this one here. And we, um, with these telescopes, we can do science. We can do uh, basically uh, transform everybody into a, an astronomer. And that's why SET Institute is a scientific partner of the company as well. Okay, well, I definitely want to talk about about the EV scope and and Unistellar, but <clears throat> let's start with with adaptive optics. Um, how much has of a difference has adaptive optics made to the field of ground based astronomy? A lot. Uh, yeah, uh, last week, I was at Space Telescope Institute, and I gave a talk. And I think I blew everybody mind by showing what well, we can do now. with well, blow optics. ours then. Uh, sorry, yeah, because with, with adaptive optics, now you can observe invisible. So you take full advantage of the size of the large telescopes. So you get better resolution than Hubble Space Telescopes. And uh, so we have, for instance, picture of asteroids. Have you seen that probably of Pallas, where you can see the craters and the central peak of the crater on an asteroid. I mean, when I was... Uh, when I was a student, adaptive optics was barely correcting the atmospheric correction, and we could barely see a point becoming uh, sharper. Now we are reaching a, um, a moment in the technology where we can compete with space telescopes using those uh, adaptive optic systems. What is the state of the art? Like, <clears throat> I think people are, are are roughly familiar with how with how adaptive optics works. You're firing a, a laser into the sky to create a, an artificial star. You're using that as a guide to to tell you what the atmospheric distortions are. You are changing the mirror to adapt to that. What is the state of the art like the, the most either one that's being built right now or one of the most complicated ones out there or most sophisticated? What is the scale of this technology now? So right now there is we're entering in a phase where people are building extreme adaptive optic systems so those are capable of getting a wavefront correction like if the telescope were truly in space okay so you get a semi-mesh quality i would say it's a very it's a simplification i can talk about stereo ratio and so on but i think we're gonna lose most of the people here it's yeah, that yeah. important well you're surprised they're very they're very they're very technical so but if you're on the number Previous, previous adaptive optic system was get, reaching a stress ratio of 40%. The new one get a stress ratio of greater than 70% and sometimes 80%. So that means they get truly the full uh, angular resolution of and the stability of a telescope, like if you were in space. 
And we also improve that. We get that better because we have better uh, mirrors. Those mirrors that move now can move a thousand times per seconds. They used to do that a hundred times per seconds. Uh, we have new technology. We know how to build uh, high capabilities uh, chronographs, for instance, to um, to be able to see the surrounding of a star and see planets. So there is three, and I will say that I'm sure someone's gonna correct me, but in my mind, there is three extreme adaptive optic systems so far. There is GPI, which was a Gemini South, and now is going to Gemini North, the Gemini Planet Imager, which discovered the first uh, Earth, uh, Jupiter-like exoplanet, uh, 51 Eridani uh, B in 2015, and we have Sphere, Sphere is now finding a lot of exopla exoplanet, and he has this system working invisible that I use for my asteroid research. And then we have Skeks-AO at Subaru. Sphere is at the VLT, Skeks-AO is at Subaru telescope in the Northern Hemisphere. And um, each of them kind of compete. They all want to find, of course, the smallest, the, the most interesting exoplanet, but they're all limited so far to the detection of jupiter saturn size exoplanets. We are going to start building telescopes that are going to be able to detect Earth, uh, Uranus size, and then Earth size exoplanets. Uh, ELT is one of them. So, what we're learning right now with this eight meter class telescope, we're going to be applicable and scale up on these large telescopes. And we will be able probably to detect uh, Earth size exoplanets using those telescopes. I mean, these the sphere well, and the, the Subaru. And Gemini, these are like pathfinders, prototypes for yes. what's coming for the extremely large telescope, a 39 meter telescope. Do you, I mean, I think space telescopes are always great, but ground telescopes have always had these other advantages that you can service them, you can upgrade the, the instruments, you can swap out the instruments for different instruments. Um, people can go and uh, you know, see them and appreciate them, hug them. Um, do you think that that ground based telescopes have reached parity, at least in the visible spectrum, and maybe near infrared to space based telescopes at the same cost? Or do you think there's still the some near, advantages? In the near infrared? Yes. In the visible, we're still starting this, of course, but it's getting there. I would say that in five years, we will have adaptive optic system invisible that will work every, on every large telescopes and we'd be capable of compete with the, the Hubble Space Telescope. And I think that's one of the reasons Hubble is a great facility, has been a great facility for 20-ish years. But right now, the main advantage of Hubble is the fact that he can observe in UV. Mm -hmm. And uh, we cannot from the ground because of the atmosphere. Yeah. But uh, soon, Hubble will be a desert instrument. There is no doubt about that. And it's already the case, I would say. But uh, we still have a good st st stability of the PSF with Hubble Space Telescope, which is important that we don't have yet from the ground. So we're making progress. And when, uh, the advantage of ground-based telescopes is the fact that we can go there and tune the instrument, install new things. I mean, Skexao is an amazing uh, AO system with a multiple instrument suite. And uh, and we're testing new technology, which seems to be extremely exotic, but they're probably going to be the one that one day will provide the picture of another pale blue dot. Yeah. yeah that will come yeah. from a ground-based telescope. Yeah. And, you know, I think about the 
you know, the capability of something like the extremely large telescope at, at 39 meters equipped with this really powerful adaptive optic system. It's going to change everything in yeah. in our understanding of, of the universe. Uh, amazing stuff. Now, do you see adaptive optics coming down? You know, you spend a lot of your time thinking about about consumer side of of scientific instruments. And, you know, and we'll talk about this a bit in a second. But do you see adaptive optics coming down to the point that that people can get some version of that installed on their on their own telescope? Yeah, I already thinking about this, of course. Oh, good, good. <laughs> you just have to have you know, a laser I... shooting out from your from your backyard uh, telescope. That would be a first maybe a best stream without the lasers. But uh, yeah, we uh, there is now prototypes and companies that will basically uh, provide adaptive optic system at low cost for uh, at low cost, I would say less than $10,000 for uh, amateur astronomers who wants to truly um, enjoy the uh, the theoretical resolution of the one or 50 centimeter telescope in the backyard. This is possible now um, because we have improved manufacturing, we understand better how to build those systems, we know what to correct and what not correct as well. So so there will be there will be something coming in the future. I'm betting in the less next five years. Great. That's awesome. All right, we'll talk about the EV scope. So so what is it? So the EV scope is a bit like uh, it's not an adaptive optic system for for amateur astronomers, but it's uh it's an it's a telescope for everybody. Um, the idea started simply by looking uh, probably you bought a telescope like me when you were a kid and you probably had a hard time using it and uh i will say 99.9 .9 of these kids they basically give up and never use the telescope again right and then they start hating astronomy or they oh. think it's too complicated oh i got so many stories i mean i'm just gonna rant here for a second here you're i mean you're exactly right right the, the experience i was pretty lucky because the first telescope that i bought was a was a four inch telescope on an on an alt azimuth mount. And I was able to just find the objects in the sky sat the Saturn, whatever point at it. And then I would just have to, you know, make these diagonal changes to the telescope as the object was moving through the field of view. And then I was able to get an actual, uh, you know, angled mount, and it had a little knob on it, I can turn it and, and stay in on track. And so that was that was fine. Um, but then when I got a more modern telescope, one that actually had like electronics and you had to do polar alignment, I gave up. I was just like, forget it, right? I'm just going to use this thing manually because because you're spending 30 minutes. you got people waiting like, oh, are we going to see Jupiter now? And you're like, yeah, yeah, just a second, just a second. Okay, now we now and then they, and then they don't because your, your polar alignment fails. It doesn't find it. So I know precisely what you're talking about. So everybody Please has continue. experience, right? Yes, yes, everybody does. <laughs> and one of my problems is that this has been kind of a problem we had for like 40 years-ish, even more, and nobody has solved that. So the EV scope is solving this. That's one of the things we do. Okay, you take the telescope, you put it in your backyard, you just have to, uh, to make sure it's flat, okay? That's not that. That's some someone can do that. The kids can do that, and then uh, you connect your uh, telescope to you uh, to an app, and the app will guide you. 
So you have to first uh, press a button so the telescope will, will move slightly down and then you do a plate scaling. We call that a field detection because it's super fast. And in less than two minutes, the app will ask you what object you want to observe and calculate for you observation objects which are observable in your area where you're located at the moment. So you don't have to go through gigantic catalogs. You probably know those gigantic catalogs we had in the past. You speak yeah. both. Okay. And uh, go online and look at all these things that what can I observe tonight? It's like way, it's way too complicated. Yeah. But you have like the most seen objects like Orion Nebula, uh, the uh, Triangulum Galaxy, um, the Dumbbell Nebula. They come first, of course, because they are the most iconic objects in the sky. You press Dumbbell number Nebula, the telescope will move to the location, check tells you I'm ready, you press a button called Enhanced Vision, and the system will basically take observations for you. So inside there is a digital camera at the prime focus here, okay? And th there is a computer on the side here that calculates in real time um, the best image possible by stacking, the rotating, aligning, removing, filtering, background subtraction, all of this. And then in the eyepiece here for the Equinox 2, you see the image uh, being built basically as the photons come and you can see them as well on your app right and you can share the image right. and multiple people can come and instead of freezing themselves in line waiting to be able to observe they can just connect their phone to the telescope and they all can enjoy together observing the, the observing so, the, so that's the main idea yeah and so the, like you know like the technology i think that the the stroke of genius here is is incorporating the plate solving into this process because even the modern, you know, the modern telescopes that you can get with some kind of uh, automation, you can give it your location, which is important because really, you know, you need to know your look, the telescope needs to know where it is on Earth, and then it needs to know what it's looking at. It's easy to give it the location on Earth, just put in your GPS coordinates, and now the telescope knows where it is. The tricky part is for it to understand how it is in relation to the sky. And that's why you go through this process of, of polar alignment. And so if I understand correctly, you just take this telescope, let it look around at the sky. It sees a couple of star fields, recognizes the star fields, does the math, the plate solving yeah. to figure out precisely how it is oriented. And you collapse that entire process of trying to understand trying to get the things all lined up nicely into just a completely automated experience. How long does it take from when you take this telescope and you set it out on your patio and you press the button, beep, boop, let's, let's start doing some observing to when it's ready to start taking images for you. Two minutes, two minutes. Oh, and yeah, I, two we minutes. did some small Can't... competitions yeah. with, uh, with observer. And I know that I can do it in two minutes yep. because once I wanted to observe an occultation and uh, I was with uh, my student at the time, Daniel, and we were set up and then some cops came and said, you can be here, sir. Because <laughs> they thought, I don't know, we were doing something illegal with um, a with weapon or whatever. Yeah. So we took the telescope, we ran out and we set it up two minutes before the occultation to another place and <laughs> we observed it. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. And then the second part is this idea of essentially doing the astrophotography for you. And that's yes. the other whole, like, let's say you are able to get your telescope to the point that you can 
go out, take it out, spend your 30 minutes polar aligning it. You're looking through the eyepiece. You're seeing Jupiter where it's supposed to be. You're punching in to go see the Orion Nebula. That's all working. But then if you want to do astrophotography, it's a whole other rabbit hole yeah. level of complexity to try to go into about about getting your camera cooled down and getting the right filters in place and getting the, the right, right exposure things, uh, lengths and getting the the images all downloaded to your computer and then processing the images locally and removing the you know the the ones that have the starlink going through and so on and so on and so on right it's a whole other level of of misery and it takes those two like together to take just a picture of the orion nebula so I'm going to go back to my example of the kid here, because we this is something I really when when you buy a telescope to your kid, you will receive the telescope. And if you look at I'm not going to say brand name here because I don't want to keep neutral. But most sure. of those brands, what they put is a pretty picture of a galaxy or nebula taken by Hubble Space Telescope on the box. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. But imagine the kids finally managed to magically align the telescope, calibrate, uh, focus it observe Jupiter and the moon's fun, and then say, oh, I'm going to observe a galaxy or nebulae. Find the nebulae, which is already complicated for most, most people, right? And what you see is a tiny grayish dot. Basically. Yes, a little blur, a smear. And a little blur. You call your friends and you say, hey, I found the galaxy and this is tiny blur. And, and you have the box still, and you can see the beautiful picture of the galaxy on the box. Yeah. That's a high disappointment. And very, it's creating a generation of people who hate astronomy. That's what we have been doing for the past mm -hmm. 50 years, mm -hmm. I would say. So with this telescope, we're trying to break that. Yes, the image is not like the best image you can get doing astrophotography on supercomputer, aligning and all of this. I tr truly admire people who do that. It's a very complex uh, problem. And, um, and we are improving our image quality, but... Yes, you see a galaxy. I mean, I when I showed the spiral galaxy to my kids for the first time, the teenager, so you know they have an attention span literally five seconds, they were absolutely impressed by the fact that they could see the spiral arms of uh, of the galaxy, the triangulum galaxy, and they realized that they are seeing something far away mm -hmm. with million billion of stars inside, and that was. I think it's a game changer for for the for the psyche of people, and I, that's what we were trying to provide with this telescope—a tool, an extension of human being to to go reconnect to to space and to astronomy. Yeah, like my again, you know, like you take a telescope, even like a nice Dobsonian, and you look at a at the Moon or Jupiter or Saturn or Mars, and they all are exactly what you were hoping to see. They are as beautiful and amazing and it's kind of stunning that you're looking into the eyepiece and you're seeing the rings of Saturn. And if you've got even just a, a six inch te a telescope or an eight inch telescope with a with a good Barlow on it and you're seeing those rings, it is like nothing else. But once you've looked at those five things and then you're like, yeah. what's next? OK, globular clusters and and open star clusters are wonderful to look at inside the telescope. But apart from that, nebulae, maybe the ring nebula, but really ring, you know, nebulae and galaxies are disappointing until you do those big long exposures. And those are 95% of the things 99% of the things that you're gonna want to look at once you're tired of the moon, yeah. again, 
<laughs> so, um, so then what, you know, sort of thinking, of, you know, from an astrophotography perspective, let's say people are fairly familiar with astrophotography. What is the telescope doing to actually build up that image? So we do what professional astronomers have been doing for years. Okay, so we do uh, background subtraction, some kind of flat fill, uh, but pixel correction, uh, the rotation, stacking, filtering of the image in some cases. Uh, we also remove the image when there is no, um, I don't know, if there is wind, for instance, uh, or people st walk around the telescope and the, right. so the floor is not stable. The telescope recognizes that detect this and get rid of those frames. So try to improve the, sh the frame. One, the user, that the, the floor is moving. Um, and then we do st simply add, uh, stacking. And I mean, we have our own secret source as well that I'm not going to reveal here, of course, but we have our own algorithm to improve even the image better. Uh, the detector is uh, the temps detector you have on the camera with, uh, with Bayer, uh, Bayer Matrix. So basically, you have colors thanks to that. And that's the reason you see the nebula, uh, like uh, the dumbbell, in color. You can see the green and the, and the red without any problem with, you, with your eyes into the, sense, into the eyepiece on your, on your phone. So the principles are very simple, I would say. There's nothing really. But we have our own algorithm in the back. But it's not. It's. If we're improving, you may not, I don't know if you have noticed, the images get better over time. We released the first telescope in 2019, and now in 2022, you can see that the images are getting better because we are improving the algorithm. We are learning as well how people use our telescope. That's also one of the best things of this telescope is that thanks, because they're identical, we truly understand the limitation or the property of the detector and the and the, and the, the way the detector behave or the way the telescope behave. So we're building algorithm around that to improve the image quality as well. And there will be more coming. Every month we change the, the app and there is some improvement. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, when I think about my experience with astrophotography, you realize how much it is an art as much of it is a science and as much of it is a technology thing. And you can see people who get into the field and they show you their first picture. And two years later, it's still the same camera, the same telescope, but the new pictures are dramatically different. They've learned to observe when the seeing is really good. They've yeah. learned to, to better dial in the exposure times to the object for what it is that they're looking at some objects like a long exposure time other objects are, are fine with shorter exposure time so you don't say blow out the the bright parts of the trapezium in in the orion nebula um how much control like as you become more advanced and more skilled how much control can the the photographer get to start to apply their skills and ideas into this final image that they're creating as they're gathering raw data so for the EV scope, what we right now, the software decide basically uh, the gain and uh, exposure time of the object you're observing. This is something like we uh, we set automatically, and then you have access to your data if you want to uh, to do your own data analysis and your own astrophotography. Like is it just fits files? 
it could be fits or something else but since i use fits only i don't i don't care about the name of the other one right <laughs> right okay but you get so in other words you can you can download all the fits files that that the, yeah. the telescope is was recording and then you can bring them over into nebulosity or whatever you want to try and yeah. and stack up your image yourself okay so cool. we are not that to the point where you can download them automatically just to clarify we okay. have to ask unistella but you receive that in less than 24 hours but we are going to work on the system to make this easier in the future right right yeah i mean i think that's the gap is i mean the algorithm is great and i think you're you're exactly right that you get this this immediate you can't believe that this tiny telescope is taking this image and is showing you the dust lanes in andromeda or or whatever but a skilled astrophotographer is going to say you know i could that's do better enough i could yeah. not enough i could do better right and i think that's yeah, and yeah we do have those in fact and i like them because they challenge us well, now they show us that the, what we can truly get with our telescope and sometimes I'm even surprised myself to see the quality of data they get. So, yeah. Right. So then, I mean, that's a little weird that that you have to email and ask Unistellar for the data. I mean, is the data owned by? No, by... the data the data owned by the users. We have to follow the GDPR uh, right. rules. So. The only reason we have to ask Unistellar is because you have to send the data to us. So then they are on our server. Right, and people ask why? Do, why do you care to receive data from the users? So first of first of all, to clarify, the users they don't have to send us the data. If they don't want to, they don't, right. and that's fine. But if they want to receive the data, they have to send it to us definitely. Yeah. Because, the because, reason we like receiving data as well is because we do a lot of analysis about the observations, and we see how many uh, what people observe we understand better the behavior of the telescope. All those algorithms that I mentioned to you to improve the image quality over the past uh, two years, they came out because of that, because we received the data from people and we kind of better understand what's going on with the telescope. Right, right. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, it feels I mean, it feels to me like they're, the experimentation done by the users to change exposure times to, to depending on the object, I mean, that's like the biggest thing that I would think of is like the technique to get a good picture of the Orion Nebula is very different from the technique to get a good picture of the cigar galaxy. Yeah. And but keep in mind that the true goal of Unistellar is to democratize astronomy. Mm -hmm. So basically what we would like is that people never have to think about what you just mentioned. Mm hmm. All of this should be automatic, should be done by the processor on board and the computer know what you're observing and adjust the image, adjust the gain based on that. That's ultimately our goal, in fact. Yeah. I would like people to have a telescope that they can enjoy looking at the sky. Like when you use a phone, you don't care about how the photons are generating on the LED screen. You don't care about all of this. You're using your phone to communicate with your friends and your family. Well, you should use a telescope to, uh, to enjoy the dark sky, to admire galaxies and nebulae, not tuning around and trying to get the best. I mean, it's great. A small portion of the people will love to do that, but that's not everybody. And what we're trying to do is to bring astronomy to everybody. Well, let's talk about the science of of using the EV scope, what are some of the 
I guess, you know, as your role as a scientist, um, what kinds of observations and, and campaigns have you been organizing to get EV scope owners involved in? We have a lot. So I'm going to give you some, drop you some numbers here. In the year 2021, we observe 400 exoplanet transits. And those are uh, transiting exoplanet, Kepler or test objects of interest that Jupiter size orbiting around G type stars typically. And uh, we detect them, we detect the, the one person attenuation using our telescopes. We combine observation with multiple users around the world so we can see very long period uh, plan uh, 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 planet, for instance. Um, for instance, yesterday we announced the detection of HD 80606b, which is one of these extremely eccentric exoplanets. I think it's one of the most eccentric orbit. And uh, this exoplanet also transit, which is kind of fun when you think about it. And of course, um, this is going to be one of the targets of the JWST uh, ERS program. Yeah, I, I saw that November. press release just like today. Yeah. 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 So what we, uh, what we asked as our user, we predicted when the occultation will happen in December 11th. Yeah, there was an uncertainty of two or three hours. And we asked our user to observe it continuously. So we have users all around the world, Europe, United States, Japan, because it was Northern Hemisphere, who observed it. And you can see the visual animation, we can see the attenuation. And this is possible because of the unistellar network, because we have a distributed network. We have 7,000 telescopes around the world at the moment. Most of them are in North America, Europe, and Japan, but now we are growing the network to other regions of the world. And they observe this, uh, exo the exoplanet transit. And it's important to have observed that now because now we can estimate to the order of three minutes, I think the error is two or three minutes, when the transit will occur, when JWST will observe it in October. Huh, interesting. So we save time, right. JWST time. Uh, right, so JWST can just observe the exact three minutes and then move on to some other important job. Exactly. Right, Extragalactic right. people should be happy. We're gonna we're gonna save time of these precious telescopes so they can observe more galaxies. <laughs> it it is interesting. Like there are, I mean, at this point, probably ten thousand ish objects of interest between Kepler and TESS mm -hmm. and other ground based observatories. More coming all the time with five thousand confirmed exoplanets. There's a lot of work to be done to 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 image these objects of interest and provide more confirmation and not enough telescopes to go around and not enough exactly. astronomers to do this to do this work. How what percentage do you think of these could be confirmed by say an EV scope? Like if I just if I just donated my EV scope time, I just set it outside and let it just work on science for the night. How much of a role do you think these telescopes could play in in just say exoplanet research? So in TESS, I don't have the exact number, but uh, uh, Tom Esposito, who leads this program, told me last time that he knows that I have at least 800 targets of interest that we can observe with the EV scope right now. TESS object of interest, sorry. So that's a lot. That's mm -hmm. more than, uh, than one person can do. Every night, there is one. Every night, there is a planet, a TESS object of interest waiting to be uh, confirmed, in fact. And we don't have enough telescopes for that. So we are starting this. We're working with TFOP. 
the team and we are basically confirming some of those exoplanets. We have uh, our first TFOP had been submitted last week, in fact. Uh, it's a confirmation of a planet and we also see a shift of the timing of the planet. So now the, uh, the orbit has been refined and it's a confirmed exoplanet. So yeah, um, and those people, I would say, who have this telescope were not astronomers before and most of them but half of them had never had a telescope before, even so. So, what do you really... think the what do you think the future are? What are some? I mean, that's just one exoplanets, but I mean, you've done asteroids. Uh, what are some other? So after that, we do uh, planetary defense. So we basically have a, a bot, a robot, analyzing continuously what comes from MPC and tell us when there is something observable. Uh, like if you find a new, uh, an asteroid is fine to now, and we know that tonight it will be observable from California and fly by Earth, I will be able to uh, send this alert to our network. And we have observation taken regularly in planetary defense to refine the orbit of those asteroids. This is very challenging, especially with such a small aperture. But once again, the point here is that there will be always someone observing this night. So there will be always one person at least to observe this asteroid and be able to refine its orbit. And it's very valuable, as you know, we will know if, for instance, the asteroid impact Earth in the next hours, having the last, the last points is extremely important to accurately estimate the location of the impact. At the SETI Institute, uh, Peter Jennings can have done that in, 19, in 2006, uh, and we get the pristine a meteorite in Sudan, thanks to that. We went to Sudan a month later and we captured fragments of an asteroid, basically almost unaltered. Yeah. That's this kind of stuff that we will do. We want to contribute to that kind of science. We do occultations as well. So those are uh, when the asteroid is passing between us and the star and we see the shadow. And here we need to have multiple observations taken at the same time, roughly, and we see the shadow of the asteroid. Uh, we target uh, men belt, large men belt, because there is still a lot of them. We don't know the size and the shape, which is kind of surprising. And we also target uh, Lucy mission uh, targets, Russian asteroids. So we observe the first occultation of Horus was observed uh, by Horus was observed from Oman using the Unistellar network. And that's allow users a month later to observe again an occultation in, East, in uh, Hawaii, in Big Island precisely because our data pinpoint the lo exact location of uh, of Horus. Um, uh, what are what are some ideas that you haven't had a chance to implement yet that you oh. think would work? So we want to do comets and in mm -hmm. fact uh, I hire uh, a new uh, comet researcher Ariel Grilotsky from UCLA she's coming to join our team and she's gonna be working on how we can use our system to observe more comets, uh, derive the uh, the spin orbit, the spin of the of the nucleus from the jets, analyzing the jet, for instance. Uh, we can put filter in front of the eviscope. That's something I can, I can mention briefly here, so that could, we could find the right filter to improve the contrast. Um, I'm going to Namibia in June to observe an occultation by Europa. And here the goal is to uh, precisely pinpoint the location of, of Europa. Uh, so we have an, 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 uh, some, some constraint on the in interior of, of Jupiter. Hmm. Um, so that's another type of occultation, it's occultation of satellites, by satellites. 
Uh, of course, there is some more interesting things we are thinking about, like supernovae. Uh, we have now an advisor in this field that's going to help us developing the supernovae field. Uh, and we have more challenging stuff. Like one of them is to try to find the afterglow of gamma ray burst or even the afterglow of um, gravitational waves. And and with a four inch or just over a four inch reflector telescope and optics yes. on board. Yeah. It, because it, it, we can combine observations. Remember that right. they're all identical and we have been we have learned a lot about the sensitivity of the telescope. So there is a paper written by Richard Berry, which is in preparation. I can mention that we have now a value, a limited magnitude of our EV scope, which is 17.5, uh, the details, survey, the SNA, etc. So just with this telescope, you reach 17.5. We have been combined. We have combined observation with twenty users, and we reached nineteen, nineteen point five. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I so mean, now, like, like, there's this idea. Like, people always, when people think about, when they learn about, say, interferometry and how you can have two telescopes on opposite sides of the planet working together to act like a single telescope, they're like, "Whoa, could we do that with regular telescopes?" And the answer is, no, unless you no. can align them to within nanometers of each of each other um, make and make always sure that they are it's very tricky to do. But you can combine the light as if it was it was the two telescopes, the total size of the two mirrors acting together. And so are you saying like, like, if you take all however many 1000s of these telescopes out there, and you all point them at the same object at the same time, it's kind of like one telescope with the combined uh, surface area of all of those telescopes added together? Yeah. Especially when the telescopes are strictly identical and you truly understand their behavior in cities with high background, vibration, winds, and so on. That's really what you need to know. Right. This is a research that we are starting now. Yeah. We have done some tests with uh, comets. We have observed a comet. There was a comet Atlas, and we saw the comet basically disintegrated thanks to our users. Yeah, citizen astronomers, and they uh, and this observation was taken with twenty and forty uh, uh, citizen astronomers simultaneously, and we can see that we reach a magnitude nineteen point five without any problem. Uh, which you which no one telescope should be able to reach. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's amazing. Wow, that's, that's amazing, crazy. Yeah? yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, there there was a great uh, idea for a space telescope that I saw a couple of years ago where they were just following on this idea, like instead of trying to build an interferometer, let's just build really inexpensive telescopes, let's just like inflatable telescopes, let's just put them up one after the other. And you get the combined light gathering power of all of those telescopes, not necessarily, you're not going to get the the interferometry aspect of it. But at least if you send up two meter two one meter telescopes, now you've got a two meter telescope, you send up a 1000. Now you've got a 1000 meter telescope, then yeah. eventually this does this does add up. And it's interesting to see, as you can get advantage to all of these telescopes working simultaneously, that you can start to do more sensitive instruments. Now, I've heard that that there really is a limit like beyond a one meter telescope without adaptive optics, you really can't improve your image of the sky. Yeah. 
right like literally just it always stay limited to the size of the aperture that's right yeah and even if you had a 10 meter telescope it wouldn't be able to take a much better picture than a one meter telescope without adaptive optics is there some advantage to be made on seeing the sky from different atmospheric conditions around the world like if the one telescope is in France and the other one is in the US they're seeing different versions of the atmosphere is there a way to then get a sense of the ground truth between those two observations no there is uh, to my knowledge there is none the reason for which however it's interesting to have multiple observers around the planet observing almost simultaneously a phenomena for instance is that you can the atmosphere change a lot and you sometimes even in san francisco here i have seen i've seen seeing which are better than one half second okay right. so that's it's possible in city so the more people observe the the more likely you will get a very good set of observation right so if you have 1000 telescopes observing let's say you take the 10% best image you will reach us um, and you will get an image quality which is significantly better because you have selected the one which has the best see but i so wonder if the only... one can tell the others to improve their seeing like I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I may be way out of, you know. Yeah, no, like, the problem like, of the, it's like a Kolmogorov thing. So it's very, um, it's chaotic. For it's, sure. There is no, yeah. I think about like, say, gravitational lensing and yeah. how you can reconstruct the image of the galaxy that you're seeing through the gravitational lens. Could you reconstruct the image, the bad images that are still gathering some photons? They're just in the, they're photons in the wrong places. And I wonder if you could use the 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 best seeing almost like a, I don't know, wisdom of the crowds to to try to improve the overall images. But you know, it, it might be it might be impossible. It's probably possible to use this good image as a as a prior when you do that analysis, like deconvolution, right. or machine machine learning, basically, you tell yeah. the algorithm, we know there is something here faint, we see it in the good data. Take all those faint, crappy data yep. and try to get extracted. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's possible. Yeah. Interesting. Fact, that's that's the principle of deconvolution yeah. uh, using the Mistral algorithm for those who really wants to know all the details. And that's what we do when we analyze our observation using the, of the sphere uh, uh, adaptive optic system. How much does an EV scope cost? So the Equinox version, which is the tiny, the, the, the one here, is 3K. Is, is sorry, three, and, is 3K? Yeah, 3K. And this one here, the, that's the that's the Eviscope 2, is uh, 5,200 at the moment. Okay. And is it the same size telescope? So it's the same four-inch-ish yeah. reflector in, in both cases. Yeah. So the difference between those two is this one is a detector which... which uh, resolution of 4k this one's 7k mm -hmm. and this one has an eyepiece which does this one does not right so the so for the people who do want the eyepiece and you do want to just look and see saturn and see jupiter yeah. you can see it in, in real time as well so the complaint obviously is that i can go out and i can buy a pretty good astrophotography rig for mm -hmm. a significantly lower price than mm -hmm. that and and the misery 
<laughs> that goes along with what we talked about earlier on. So how do you make the case to people like, who is this for? Because that's a lot of I mean, that's a lot of money. $5,000 is a lot of money for a yeah. person who wants to see pictures of the night sky. That's a serious investment. If you're gonna spend $5,000 to to take pictures of the night sky, you might be really tempted to spend that on old school polar line, wait, 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 I'm just trying to get the picture wait, 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 type gear. Where do you who do you think this is for? So we, um, we have a lot of people who buy this telescope, right? I mean, we have reached seven, a network of 7000 people. So there is uh, interest from the community to buy telescopes like that. Uh, the Equinox, which is the low cost one, is in my mind for people who want to to be part of the network and do science really the, the equinox is uh, is the best instrument if you want to be part of the citizen science network of unistellar and you want to uh, from your backyard uh, be able to observe uh, galaxy nebulas and do a meaningful astronomy and you learn as well you can access to the data you can also uh, process your own observations and be part of the network um, the Equinox, the, the Equinox 2 at 5K is truly expensive. It's an expensive instrument. He has the eyepiece, and I will say that a lot of amateur astronomer club are buying that now. Because, um, as you know, when you do astronomy and you set up a telescope, people are not patient. They don't wait, especially the younger generation. So they want some instant gratification. We are providing this with this telescope. Uh, schools community colleges, um, universities are buying these telescopes. Uh, they're replacing, in fact, the old telescope they had in the dome that students could not use because they were too complicated. Now they use the Aviscope 2 and they do scientific investigation as well with the teachers. So we have a lot of education also that I will not talk about today, but we are building a, an education program around the Aviscopes uh, yeah, and we are providing uh, material for educators, material for professors, so they can be part of the network, do science with their students, learn how to process and analyze data. So it's an investment, but if you buy a telescope, you build it yourself, you, you need a computer to learn how to process, it's going to at the end be almost the same price. Uh, someone make comparison, I forgot, uh, it's published somewhere online, of the price, and at the end, you will see that you will be more or less the same. The cost is more or less the same. So it's just if you have a lot of time, yeah, do your own telescope, build your own grind your own, your own mirror. Yeah, polish your own mirror if you really, really want to do everything. Yep. But in my case, I I have a job as an astronomer, and since I have this telescope, you see there is three of them around me here. It's not for the show; they're always here. <laughs> right. Always, because uh, last night I tried to uh, to catch uh, Comet C21-2021-03, which is just coming out of the sun, hoping to be able to detect it. I use those telescope. Almost every week I use my telescope three or four times. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I get a lot of comments from people telling me that in the six months they had this telescope, they use it more than they have used the old 
I'm not saying brands telescopes in the past because it's easy to use because it's uh, because it's simple because it doesn't have all this complexity and it takes two minutes to taking out. So in the evening you see the sun is setting and it's a beautiful. It may be a beautiful night. You take the telescope out, you observe for one hour, and then you go back home and you watch Netflix, whatever you want. But you have this moment where you connected with the sky. The I mean the, the the saying with a camera right is the the best camera is the one that you use. Exactly. And and I absolutely have a telescope that is gathering dust that I don't even want to think about how much work it's going to be to get it out each time and, and polar line and take images. And instead, I take my binoculars and I go outside and I lie in the easy chair and look at the sky with binoculars because it's easy. It's quick. Um, uh, so what what do you see as the future of this kind of of a solution? I'm sort of surprised, though, that I mean, it feels like an, an easy connection to go to, like, I could just bolt my I could bolt a Rasa on top of the mount while it's doing its work. And the Rasa could just tag along with the plate solving. Why hasn't this idea of plate solving and automation been brought into the more traditional the old school telescopes, it doesn't feel like it's that complicated. Now that you're demonstrating this is possible and make a best of both worlds. Yeah, most of the time, the the, the idea is simple and just nobody got the idea before. Okay. Yeah. Um, there is one thing that um, I, I went to Marseille two weeks ago, and I talked to my colleagues about this. And one of the engineer told me something which I think it's it's in my mind now. It's very easy, not very easy, but it's easier to do an instrument that works 90% of the time, like do plate solving and doesn't it's fails 10% of the time and you tune it, etc. Blah blah. It is very complicated to do an instrument that works 100% of the time. And the EV scope does work 100% of the time in terms of the plate solving, the analysis, data analysis, etc. Um, if you want to sell a product to people, telling them that it's easy to use and it's fun, it really needs to be easy to use and fun and works all the time. Hmm. I'll go back to the iPhone comparison. Uh, there was a ton of iPhone before iPhone. You probably remember that. They were like complicated to use, very like heavy. Uh, there was all this complexity that was unnecessary. And this guy came, Steve Jobs came and said, oh, we're going to do something simple, slick an iPhone, very simple, and it does work all the time. And the first one was extremely expensive, by the way. So you remember, you probably remember, it was mm -hmm. a few people could buy an iPhone. And now you go work in the street and in the US, 50% of the people work with an iPhone in their hand. So, so, do, so, do you, so I mean, guess do you see this technology taking over everything, this method, this, this making, starting with making the telescope the one you want to use, and then increasing the power and complexity and capability and so on. I think so. Because the best telescope is a telescope that you use. Yep. And the best telescope is a telescope where you can bring people around and have fun and, and, and uh, discuss about star and galaxy and the search for life and the existence of aliens. That's the best telescope. The best telescope is not the one that's going to allow you to observe a quasar, 
at the redshift of uh, redshift of seven and show right. after two hours a tiny dot to your friends. They or, will not care that much. Or the one that that your laundry hangs from. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Frank, if people want to find out more about the telescope, where's the best place to go? So. The company Unistellar has a website called at unistellar.com. And uh, you can also go to the SETI website for the education part. In the education, you will find some of the uh, material we provide for educators. So, and um, yeah, I mean, the best is really also to, if you want to see the telescope in action, you can also go on our YouTube page. We have explanation on how the telescope works. Uh, unpacking, aligning, focus, and all of this. So people will have an idea of the complexity of the, of the telescope and if, if it's really for them or not. I wonder how, how well it would work for the virtual star parties. I don't know if you know, we, we do these nights where we- I, I, I participated to one of them two yeah, years ago. Right, right, yeah. So I wonder how well, if we could like live stream from one of these into the yeah, star we party. did. Uh, we observed a, a, um, a supernova at the time. Yeah, I will always remember because it's another observation when the cops came to speak to me. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't know, I'm jinx. Yeah, you maybe, maybe. Out of nowhere. Yeah, you sure that there were cops who just come to, to to speak to me, ask me, and, and he came <laughs> just after the live. That's crazy. He was nice. He was yeah. very curious. He wanted to see what I was doing in the in the in the on the parking lot. So. Yeah, it's it's funny. We you know we've again had to put the the star parties on hiatus because because of this reliability, dependability, weather issue, number of people, etc. Like I just can't solve this problem. I can't figure out a way to get a lot of people around the world to come together who will have reliable weather to be able to show off the night sky. So I don't know, maybe you can help me figure this out at some yeah. point. Well, the great. 5th of May, uh, we are doing an event at the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco, but we're asking uh, several of our ambassadors across mm -hmm. the US to use their telescope and mm -hmm. we'll be streaming live. So if you look at the website, our website or our social media, you will find a link so you can see the telescope in action. So maybe I'll, I'll tap into some of these people and see if they exactly. can if they can join up. That would be a good idea. And you can if, even ask for objects if you want to. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. So if if people want to follow your work, what's the best way way to do that? Uh, also go my uh, on the city.org page, and uh, you will see some of my news. But my social media, I'm very active on Twitter. Yep. So that's where you're going to see most of my work, in fact. Fantastic. Well, Frank, it was a pleasure to talk to you again. I'm glad the cops didn't show up this time. Maybe To shut this down. <laughs> um, but good luck with what you're doing. And, uh, you know, I look forward to sort of the future of this of this part of the hobby and, and as it connects into science. It's, it's pretty exciting stuff. So good luck with everything you're working on. Thank you very much, Fredo. All right. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.